So in the book of Nehemiah, uh, we're going to be getting a new series, as I said, and um, basically what we want to do this morning uh, is accomplish a bit of an introduction into this book. Uh, I'm assuming most of us aren't very familiar with the story of Nehemiah, um, with what is really going on in the life of Israel at this point. All of these things are extremely important for us to understand what we're going to be seeing in the book. We need to have a good grasp on redemptive history, on what Israel, uh, God's purpose was and plan was for Israel. And so that's kind of what we're going to be looking at this morning, uh, the sermon title being Nehemiah, God's glory in redemptive history. You'll notice that we sang a lot this morning about the glory of God. Well, that's going to be the overarching theme that we see here in redemptive history and also continued in the book of Nehemiah. You should have a couple things in your bulletin to help you follow along. One is this awesome um, timeline bookmark uh, that Marlene put together for us. Um, we're gonna be looking at some of these events here this morning, so you can use that to help you follow along and keep that for the remainder of the series as well. And then also we have a bulletin insert with the three points I'll be going through, and hopefully uh, you can use that to follow along as well. So spoiler alert here, I don't know, um, like I said, we probably don't know a lot about Nehemiah. If you've ever read the book before, you'll notice very quickly that the majority of the book is about Nehemiah and the Jews building a wall around Jerusalem. Now, if half of a book is dedicated to this one thing occurring, this building of the wall, we have to assume that there is significant meaning in this wall. The first half of the book uh, deals with building the wall. The second half deals with Nehemiah's moral reforms to the people of Israel as they're returning from exile. And so really the question becomes for us, what is the purpose of Nehemiah? And then more specifically, what is the purpose of the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem? Now, if none of this makes sense to you, what are you talking about? You're talking about Israel. You're talking about a wall. You're talking about Jerusalem. I'm hoping that our uh, a little analysis here of redemptive history will help bring us to the point where we understand what's going on in Nehemiah and therefore reveal the beauty of God's glory as it's being displayed to us in Nehemiah. So without seeing this redemptive history up until Nehemiah, we'll only see a very dim picture of God's glory, but I'm hoping that as we embark on this journey through Nehemiah, understanding how Israel got there will greater reveal to us the glory of God in Nehemiah. So we'll look at this in a couple different ways. Um, I'm gonna be looking at verses one through three for the introduction here. And in those verses, we'll see firstly, Nehemiah's concern for history. He's concerned to reveal to us where these events are taking place in redemptive history. Uh, secondly, we'll see Nehemiah's concern for the exiled, namely the Jews, them being in exile and them being delivered from exile. And then we'll see, lastly, uh, Nehemiah's concern for God's glory, which is directly tied to rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. So allow me then to read verses one through three of Nehemiah chapter one, and then we'll pray and begin. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. 
And they said to me, the remnant there in the province uh, who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Father, thank you for the revelation of who you are in your word. Thank you for giving us your word and that you desire for us to know who you are and you desire for us to honor and glorify your name. God, help us this morning as we open up your word and as we look at the way you've acted in redemptive history. Help us to understand our part in that and our part in glorifying and honoring you today. Give us a clear picture of the purpose and intent you had for Nehemiah and the events that take place therein. I pray this all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So the first thing we see here is Nehemiah's concern for history. Verse 1, he says, Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. He's giving us a fixed place in history where these events took place. And so to bring us up to speed with what he's talking about and where we're at, I'm just going to start at Adam right here on the timeline at the bottom and work our way up. And we're going to review um, the, the history of Israel up until this point. And one thing we're going to see very clearly is that redemptive history, God's purposes in redeeming a people for himself, are all about him glorifying and honoring his name. This theme is going to return again and again and again, and that's very intentional as we get to the book of Nehemiah. So beginning then with Adam, we see that God put his glory on display by creating everything, by namely then creating Adam and Eve in his own image to reveal his glory. And then he gives them the charge to multiply and spread, right? Take dominion over the earth. And God's idea, his thought was that when he created these little image bearers and then they procreated and began to spread among the earth, that he would have millions of people spread all over the earth revealing his glory. That was his intent for humanity and also his intent for us as well. But we know the story of Adam and Eve well. That's not how it turned out, right? They rebelled against God instead and God then cursed them. In verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, we see um, this curse underway. But within this curse, we also see a very merciful promise that God extends to Adam and Eve and to humanity. He says this as he's cursing the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So in this promise, we ultimately see this come to fruition when Jesus crushes the head of the serpent at the cross and the serpent crushes his heel via the crucifixion. But what we see here is, is a very merciful promise from God. In the midst of the, the, these creatures rebelling against him, he offers them a merciful promise and says, I'm going to redeem you. In due time, I'm going to send a redeemer to redeem you from your sins for my glory. And so this promise here essentially starts redemptive history as we see God's plan to unfold to redeem mankind from their sin. And so all the way down through here, we're going to see the way that this takes place up to Nehemiah. 
And so uh, the earth and, and the men, and, and so obviously population, right? People started to grow in number, and along with that, their wickedness began to grow as well. Until the whole earth was corrupted and, and, and just revealing sinful nature and, and our own selfish desires. And so we get to the point of Noah and the flood, and God seeks to reveal the glory of his holiness by sending a flood to destroy mankind. But he won't go back on his word to Adam and Eve to redeem mankind. And so we see him preserving one man and his family, Noah, right? The story of Noah and the ark. And this reveals the glory of God's justice in keeping his word. He made a promise to Adam and Eve. He won't go back on that promise. He is a just God and will keep his word. And so he preserves Noah and his family. And from Noah and his family, we see eventually Abraham in the patriarchal period. God continues to reveal his desire to redeem mankind by making a covenant with Abraham comprised of three different things. The first is that he promises, Abraham, I'm gonna make out of you a great nation, larger than the sands of the sea. Secondly, he promises that he's going to bless those who bless Abraham and his descendants, and he's going to curse those who curse Abraham and his descendants. And then thirdly, he's going to give Abraham's descendants a land to live in the promised land, the land of Canaan as we know it to be. And so this covenant with Abraham is simply a further revelation of the glory of God's promise to Adam and Eve because we know that one of Abraham's descendants is going to be the redeemer who will redeem mankind from their sin. We know that Jesus is in the line of Abraham. And so this story continues, and Abraham has Isaac and Jacob and on down the line to Joseph at the end of Genesis, and we see that Joseph gets taken down into uh, Egypt and actually rises up to power there, becomes a right-hand man of the Pharaoh, and then there's a famine over all the land, and then who comes to Egypt but the people of Israel, right? Setting the stage for the next big event of the exodus from Egypt. And so after Joseph passes away, that concludes the book of Genesis, and we turn into Exodus, and we see that a new Pharaoh has risen to power in Egypt, and he's displaying his authority over the Israelites by enslaving them and treating them harshly. And in Exodus 9.16, God says this about Pharaoh. But for this purpose, I have raised you up, that being Pharaoh, to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And so God raises up Pharaoh. Pharaoh enslaves the people of Israel so that God will receive glory in revealing his power over the gods of Egypt through the plagues and also through the deliverance of Israel via the hand of Moses. And so we see this all take place. Yet again, this story is about God. Redemptive history is about God and the way that he's displayed his glory in redeeming mankind. And so he redeems them out of slavery in Egypt and takes them into uh, the Mount Sinai where he begins to graciously reveal to them the glory of his nature through giving them the law. He gives them the law to reveal his holiness and his perfection and what it means to dwell with God. 
And he also tells them if they do not keep this law, that he's going to exile them from the land. He's going to exile them, but he also promises that when they are exiled, because he knows it's going to happen, that God will be merciful to them and will bring them back from exile, which is where we find ourselves in Nehemiah, but we're not quite there yet. And so after uh, Israel actually begins to break those commandments right away, break that covenant with God, and so God uh, disciplines them by sending them in the wilderness for 40 years. And then God is ready to reveal the glory of his justice by keeping his promise to Abraham to give his descendants a land. And so he delivers them into the promised land, the land of Canaan, which we see in Joshua. The book of Joshua, the Israelites moving into the land of Canaan and taking it over. God revealing that he's keeping his promise to Abraham. After that, we see the period of the judges and Israel becomes very stubborn and desires to replace God with a physical king. And so God grants them this and we see that the first king over Israel is Saul. And if we know that story very well, we know that that was not a good thing for the people. Shortly after Saul, though, God raises up David to take Saul's place. And, and this is where when David is ruling over uh, the nation of Israel, where Israel is at the height of its power. Israel is a very influential and powerful nation in the world at this point. And this is when God reveals the glory of his goodness to David by making a promise to him, which yet again continues to reveal what this redeemer will come and do. God promises that the throne of David will be established forever. And so continuing to reveal that the one who will come will be in the line of David, who will redeem uh, God's people from their sin, and that his throne will last forever. But it's not long after this that we see David and Bathsheba, right? David's sin with Bathsheba, adultery, and then the murder of her husband, and things in David's household and in Israel begin to head in a downward direction from there. After David passes away, his son Solomon takes over, and then after Solomon passes away, the nation actually goes through a bit of a civil war and becomes divided. The northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah are left. And both Israel and Judah continue to break the commands of God and then, uh, and then God sends prophets. We have a huge prophetic corpus, right? All of those prophets, all those prophets are going to the people of Israel, calling them to repentance or they will be exiled. And so they don't repent and God keeps his promise to them. He keeps his promise and he raises up the nations around them and exiles them from the land. Now we see that the exile, both northern kingdom and southern kingdom are invaded and exiled by Assyria and Babylon. And then shortly after that, uh, Cyrus II would conquer Babylon and essentially take over uh, the area of the northern and southern kingdom. And we'll know that Cyrus is very important to our story because Cyrus is the one who initially allows the people, the Jews, to return to the promised land to return to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the city. We see that in the prophets and we see that in Ezra. And so if you look on your outline here, there's three different returns. The first, when Cyrus decrees that they can return, is under a man named Zerubbabel. He takes some Jews back to Jerusalem and they begin to rebuild the temple. 
Then Ezra comes back with another group of exiles, and he finishes the temple and begins working on the wall. And then the wall hasn't gotten done, and then comes Nehemiah, which is where we find ourselves. Nehemiah returns under King Artaxerxes and begins to rebuild the wall. So yet again, I I don't want us to lose the focus in what we're trying to accomplish here. Redemptive history serves the purpose of revealing the glory of God and him redeeming a people for himself. Nehemiah fits into this scheme. Nehemiah is very important to this scheme of God's glory and redemptive history. And we'll see how that is by considering a little bit more closely the exile and the return from exile, which is Nehemiah's second concern in verse 2. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital, verse 2, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Nehemiah is concerned with those people, the Jews, who he is a part of, who had been exiled and who were now returning to the land. He was concerned about them. And so Nehemiah's writings is in the context of exile and return. So let us consider that in a little, more, uh, a little greater detail. Think about the exile from the perspective of a Jew. All of those promises that God had made, the promise he made to Adam, the promises he made to Abraham, the promise that he made to David, and many more. What was going through the mind of Israel when they were exiled from the land? It was completely devastating to them. What's going on? What in the world is going on here? What is God doing? Why is he exiling us from the land? Consider the promise to Adam. The seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman would crush the seed of Satan. Well, currently the seed of Satan, the pagan nations, are conquering the seed of the woman, which is identified as Israel and then later Jesus. In the exile, we're told that, or in the promise to Abraham, we're told that they would be a great nation, but yet they're being conquered by other nations, by pagan nations. We're told that they would receive a land which they only occupied for a short time, and now they're being exiled from that land. The blessings to those who bless Abraham's descendants and the curses to those who curse them seems to be flip-flopped. It seems as though Israel is being cursed, and the nations being blessed by their victory over them. The promise to David that David's throne would endure forever. Currently, there is nobody on the throne of Israel, and they're being ruled by pagan kings. Israel had these promises in mind during their exile. What were they thinking? Has God forsaken us? Has God gone back on his word, on the promises that he made to us? Now we know, with the benefit of standing on the other side of redemptive history or on the other side of this event, that God has not gone back on his word to his people. So we have to ask then the question, why the exile? What's the purpose of the exile if not to forsake his people? Well, we see that just like the rest of redemptive history, The exile serves the purpose of glorifying God. And we see this in a couple ways. First, the exile displays the glory of God through God keeping his word, 
to exile the people. He made that a promise back in Deuteronomy. If you don't keep the commands that I'm giving you, you will be exiled. He's keeping his promise to Israel to exile them and through that revealing that he is a just God for which he should be glorified for. And secondly, the exile displays the glory of the patience of God with his people. It probably would have been right and good for God to completely destroy Israel, to have nothing more to do with this people who continue to rebel against him, though he continually be faithful to them, to him. But yet we see God very mercifully sending them into exile as a way to deliver them from their sin, as a way to bring them to repentance. He very mercifully patiently and graciously delivers them over to the nations. But not only is God glorified in the exile of his people, he's also glorified in the return of his people. Now as the, the nation is in, um, is in exile, God sends prophets to them, continuing to call them to repentance, one of those prophets being Ezekiel, where God reveals his primary motivation for delivering the people of Israel out of exile. Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23 say this. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God's holiness is vindicated before the eyes of the nations through God bringing them out of exile and returning them to the land and he makes very clear here that he's doing this for the glory of his name. The second way in which the return displays the glory of God is that it displays the glory of the sovereignty of God over all of this, over all of redemptive history. We see this both in King Cyrus, who we know is the first one to allow the Jews to return, and then King Artaxerxes, who came later and who Nehemiah was the cupbearer for. We see this in Ezra 1.1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And that proclamation was that the Jews could return and begin to rebuild their city. This proclamation came about because the Lord sovereignly stirred the heart of the Persian king. This wasn't a good thing for Persia to have potentially an enemy go and rebuild their city. But yet God sovereignly works and stirs the heart of Cyrus. And we see a very similar thing in the heart of the king Artaxerxes as Nehemiah goes and approaches him and says, I'd really like to go back and rebuild the walls around my city. And at the end of that exchange, we see this. And the king granted me, Nehemiah, what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. 
God reveals the glory of his sovereignty by stirring the heart of Cyrus to allow the people to return and by working in the heart of Artaxerxes to allow Nehemiah to return also and rebuild the city. Now this is where the story gets really amazing. It's one thing to allow a, potentially, uh, a potential enemy of yours to go and rebuild their city, but that's not even the extent to which God reveals his glory in this story. Not only does Cyrus and Artaxerxes allow the people to go and rebuild the temple and the wall, they pay for it to happen. I gotta hear a chuckle or something. Like, that doesn't happen, right? We don't see that happening ever. I think of a, a recent debate I watched where a, a certain presidential front runner said, I'm going to build a wall around the United States and I'm gonna make Mexico pay for it. When I saw that, I was like, you've gotta be kidding me. That doesn't happen. But yet we see it happen with God, revealing his sovereignty in the hearts of these pagan kings. Here we see the truth of Proverbs 21.1 in action. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will, and he turns it for the glory of his name. The third and final way in which the return reveals the glory of God is that it, it puts his faithfulness to his people on display in spite of their unfaithfulness to him. Deuteronomy 4, 29 and 31. But from there, from exile, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to you. God is not willing to go back on his word to his people. He remains faithful to them in the midst of their unfaithfulness. We see this in the return of Israel from exile. The glory of God's faithfulness being put on display. So that's a lot of background, right? But now we've come to the point. Why the wall? We're trying to answer that question. Why is the wall around Jerusalem so important, which is essentially the point of Nehemiah going back to rebuild this wall? Well, after seeing how God has strategically glorified himself in redemptive history, it should be all the more beautiful in realizing he continues to do the same with reference to the wall. So why the wall? Verse three. After Nehemiah had inquired about the Jews and about Jerusalem, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had been exiled, who had, who had survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Notice this. Uh, the Jews who come and, and give Nehemiah this, um, this information associate trouble and shame with the lack of a wall around their city. Did you catch that? They are in great trouble and shame. Why? The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And so the lack of a wall in Jerusalem 
meant trouble and shame for the people of Israel. I think the first one of those elements is really easy to understand. Trouble, right? If you don't have a wall around your city, you have nothing to protect yourself with from enemies. They can just come whenever they want and take whatever they please. They were in great trouble. Now the second one, I think, is a little bit more interesting. How does the lack of a wall around Jerusalem equate to shame of the people? But we actually see this later in the book of Nehemiah, but the nations come to Jerusalem and mock the people for their lack of a wall, for the fact that their wall had been destroyed. As they're trying to rebuild it, the nations come and they mock. And if we know anything about redemptive history, it's that when God's people are mocked and God's people are shamed, God himself is mocked. And God himself is shamed because he so closely identifies himself with his people. And so this is why Nehemiah is so important. This is why the wall is so important. What's at stake here is the glory of God. Will God continue to be mocked? Or will he reveal his glory by building up the wall around Jerusalem. Now with the wall, I believe that in light of that, it preaches simultaneously two messages to two people. It preaches a message to the Jews and it preaches a message to the nations. The message that it preaches to the the Jews is God's defense of, care for, and continued presence with his people. Think about about what, what the Jews would feel as they visually saw God's protection being raised before their very eyes. God's care for them. God's deliverance from the mocking of the nations for them. The wall going up preaches a message to the people inside of the wall. It also preaches a message to the people outside of the wall. The wall preaches a message of God's glory to the nations, specifically in the manner in which it was built via the credit card of the the pagan kings. If the wall doesn't go up, God will continue to be mocked. But if it does go up, God is greatly glorified. And that is something that we now, today, should be interested in. We should be interested in God's display of his glory then and now. That's why Nehemiah is important today. One way of looking at it is that the wall is essentially the capstone on the return of the Jews from exile It's the full revelation of God's glory and his faithfulness to his people to keep the promises that he's made with them. Now it's important for us to understand as a point of application that this redemptive history that we're talking about is still in progress. Every day that passes by is a new day in redemptive history. And we, the church, just like Israel, 
are called to faithfully reveal the glory of God by living in obedience to his word. And so how is Nehemiah going to help us do that? How is Nehemiah going to help us live for the glory of God now? Three reasons why I think you should be excited about this book study in Nehemiah to conclude this morning. The first is this. You will be strengthened to live for God's glory by God's display of his faithfulness to his people. As you see the wall begin to go up, you will visually see God's faithfulness displayed to Israel and you know that if you are a member of God's family, that faithfulness extends to you. That will strengthen us to live for God's glory. Secondly, you will see the glory of God in continuing his plan of redemption and be spurred on to reveal his glory now. God has not forsaken his people. He's bringing them back to the land, revealing that his promises are still good and that he will fulfill them in time and that we can be a part of revealing his glory now. And lastly, you will be challenged by the testimony of Nehemiah's life and commitment to God, which will equip you to live for his glory now. The story is not only about the wall going up, but it's about the man who God called to make it happen. We can learn and should learn a lot from Nehemiah's life and commitment to God. And as we do, we will be further equipped to live for his glory today and tomorrow. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for redemptive history. Thank you for seeing fit to glorify yourself by redeeming a people. Thank you, Lord, that that those who have trusted in you this morning are counted in that number. Lord, help us, to re, help us to understand our responsibility to reveal that glory to the world. Just as the wall, when it goes up, will preach a message, our lives also preach a message. Let our lives preach a message of your glory and your faithfulness. I pray this all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.